Thank you, Kath. Do keep your Bibles open. As ever, we will need the author's help, so let's pray to begin. Lord, your word tells us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Please feed and nourish us now, that we can live for your glory this week and forevermore. Amen. Let me take you back 20 years. It's 2003, and the scene is Bristol. Specifically, it's the meeting of the Bristol University Christian Union Mission Committee. There were about six people sitting in the Student Union Cafe. Among them is me, a first-year student, mostly keeping quiet. And there's David from rural Wales, who knew all the great hymns. And there's Stuart, who used to give me lifts each Sunday to the local FIEC church across town. We are meeting to review the week-long evangelistic campaign, which has just finished. And we are feeling good. We had given out about 3,000 copies of John's Gospel. We put on a series of lunchtime hot potato talks, tackling those difficult questions about suffering, science, sex, and finding the answers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The room had been packed every lunchtime. We ran out of potatoes. And we had filled a hall in the student union every evening, seeing Jesus walk off the pages of John's gospel into people's hearts. Eternal life on offer to all who will trust in him. In every hall of residence across the university, we had visiting missioners sleeping on bedroom floors for the week to proclaim Jesus Christ through conversations and evening events. So as we gathered to review this week, we were full of thankfulness. There had been many victories. Many people had put their faith in Jesus for the first time. God had been at work so clearly. It had been incredibly encouraging. So we put our hands together, me, Stuart, David, and the rest. And we thanked God for his gracious mercy. I feel quite emotional looking back on it now. It was a crucial time for nurturing my young faith, and I could see similar joy on the faces of the others as we prayed. But that was 20 years ago. How are things going now? Well, I'm sure that there has been much fruit from that mission week, although I don't have access to the hearts of all those who believed for the first time. But I do know about David, and I do know about Stuart. And I'm sad to say that spiritually, they are nowhere. One before leaving university and the other just afterwards, they simply lost all interest in Christian things. Stopped attending church, stopped calling themselves Christians at all. All that encouragement of seeing God in action, those sincere prayers of joy and thankfulness, and yet it didn't last. Their faith seems, for now at least, to have fizzled out. Well, here we stand, Redeemer, in 2003. How are we feeling? I suggest good, full of joy and thankfulness. Four years into our church plant, and we're struggling to find a venue big enough. There have been many victories. We have seen God bring people to faith. We have heard them share amazing testimonies at their baptisms. 
We have seen God at work so clearly in people's lives, holding them tight through difficult times. It has been incredibly encouraging. Well, how do we make sure that we keep going? How do we make sure that in 20 years' time, we are not wondering what went wrong? As we look back, sadly, on faith fizzled out. Well, this section of Joshua that we're looking at, chapters 22 uh, to 24 in the next three weeks, is designed to help us with that aim. Let me remind you where we left the Israelites last time. This is 21, 43 to 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Pretty encouraging stuff. Many victories, whole lists of kings conquered and territories taken over. God has been at work but it could so easily slip out of their grasp. So in these three final chapters, we have three sermons from Joshua encouraging them to cling on tightly to this God who has kept his promises so faithfully. Will they make the obvious decision to keep being faithful to this faithful God? This first chapter, 22, is in some ways the most difficult to get our heads round. It deals with the two and a half tribes with territory east of the Jordan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The action moves quite fast. I'm sure you followed it in the reading. We move from a joyful speech to a declaration of war and finish with a happy resolution. Each section has a lesson for God's people today to us in how to stay faithful. Here's the first one, looking at verses 1 to 8. Encourage each other. Encourage each other. You might remember these Transjordan tribes from chapter 1. If you've forgotten, let me refresh your memory. Uh, This is chapter 1, 14 uh, to 15. By the beginning of the book of Joshua, these tribes, east of the Jordan, have already got their land. It had been conquered in the book of Numbers, And now it's lying ready to be settled. Homes built, crops planted, children raised. But Joshua has a further job for them to do. All your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you. And until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. They promised to obey, verses 16 to 17. Whatever you have commanded us, we will do. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. And when we get to chapter 22, Joshua summons them for a review. And the words are very nearly the same, just with different verb tenses. Back in chapter 22, verse 2, you have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. You have obeyed me in everything I commanded. You promised, you delivered. Despite having every excuse not to, you have been obedient. Well done, 
Verse 3, for a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord God gave you. It would have been so easy to be divided, but you have stuck with us through thick and thin to carry out God's commands. Well done. Now Joshua knows his doctrine about the sovereignty of God. In verse 4, he acknowledges that behind their action stood God's action. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, return to your homes. The book of Joshua is not about human heroes bravely winning victories. It is about God acting to keep his promises. God made the walls of Jericho fall down. God gave them the victories. Their obedience was actually just another merciful act of our sovereign God. And yet, you have been obedient. Well done. Then comes the command, verse 5. Be very careful to keep the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. You have been obedient, now keep being obedient. And brothers and sisters, isn't that so often the Bible's pattern? Sometimes there is a need for shock therapy to jolt people out of their arrogance. But more commonly, when God is handling his weak and anxious children, he does so gently. The pattern is commend and then command. Encourage and then exhort. Nearly every New Testament letter has a section called Thanksgiving in chapter 1 before moving on to the commands and the correction. And that's true even when there are some pretty serious corrections coming. How do you start a letter to a church where there's sexual immorality, the members are suing each other, they gobble Holy Communion, they speak in tongues to show off, and they're confused about the reality of the resurrection? Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. And didn't we see that pattern week after week in our series last year on Revelation 1 to 3 in which Jesus addresses seven churches? The Ephesians, who need to rediscover their first love pretty quickly before Jesus judges their church? Well, the Lord Jesus starts with, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Well done. Now keep going. And we will, each of us, see that pattern again personally when we meet the Lord Jesus face to face. Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. We will know that we don't really deserve it. We will know that our most obedient moments were rare, were contaminated with sinful motives, were only possible because of God's action first in our hearts. And yet he will say, well done. Last year, a boy in my boarding house, my day job, uh, was struggling to get his grades. Two subjects in particular were causing him trouble. His problem wasn't arrogance. He knew the position he was in, and he was desperately anxious. But the two teachers had radically different approaches. 
One teacher was making his problems clear to him and to me and to his mother on an almost daily basis. Your writing is unstructured. You're too passive in class. You risk failure in the exam if you don't make a real effort from now on. You're not seeking me out for the extra sessions I'm offering to you. The other teacher took a very different tack. You're working hard to add more depth to your writing. You're always attentive in class. I know you can get there if you keep trying. I'm always ready to help you whenever you need. Well done, but there's further to go. Keep going. Which subject did the boy try harder in, do you think? Which teacher was giving him the courage to keep pressing on? That's what encouragement is. The second, because they understood how anxious, easily discouraged hearts work. And the effects were evident when the final grades came in. And God knows how our anxious, easily discouraged hearts work too. And so in his holiness, he deigns to encourage us in our weak attempts at obedience, not to feed our arrogance, but to fuel our obedience. How often do we remember to do this with our Christian brothers and sisters? Would it be easier for us to press on in faithfulness if we encourage each other a little bit more? If we said, well done, on the big jobs, like remembering to thank Johnny and Chris for pastoring our church and teaching us so faithfully. If we said, well done, to all those who do the little jobs week by week, the coffee, the chairs, the creche, the sound, the music, the welcoming, the children's groups. If we knew each other well enough to notice Christian growth and say, well done, I know you've been working on grumbling less and it's lovely to see you becoming more positive, more joyful. Or to know each other's struggles well enough to say, well done, I can't imagine what it is like to live with your diagnosis, but it's been so inspiring to see you keep going. If we just remembered that standard daily life is hard, and said, well done on parenting your children and leading them to Jesus. Well done on sticking to your marriage when living with another human being is hard. Or well done for staying faithful in a job where the culture is hard on those following Jesus. Or just, I want to say thank you for being a good friend to me. Well done. These are the encouragements that will give us the courage to keep being faithful in the year ahead, to say, yeah, by God's grace, that obedience was possible. And yes, by God's grace, I will keep pressing on. Encourage each other. Point two, challenge each other. Looking at verses nine to 20, challenge each other. The temperature heats up pretty quickly in Joshua 22. Verse 9, off they go, back happily to their territories across the Jordan. Verse 10, they built an imposing altar there by the Jordan, where the other Israelites heard. Verse 12, they gathered to go to war against them. It's a multi-tribe army. Under leading covenant obedience enforcer Phineas, verse 13, last seen back in Numbers 25, heading off potential faithfulness by shoving a spear through two people. They are in shock 
Verse 16, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourself an altar in rebellion against him now? And they are prepared to oppose that rebellion with armed force. What's going on? What could an altar possibly alter? Well, we find out later that Phineas and Co.'s anxiety was a false alarm. But let me say, they were certainly right to worry. God's people must be united under God's rule. And in the Old Testament, that means one altar. Later, that altar will be in the temple in Jerusalem. But at this point, it's in the tabernacle, currently pitched at Shiloh, where the Israelite army have just chosen to gather. Deuteronomy 12, 5 to 6 lays down the rule One God, one faith, one altar. If you start building more altars, it's inevitable you'll start splitting off and compromising with a local Canaanite idolatry. Many altars, many faiths, many gods. And Phineas and the army know what unfaithfulness leads to when you have a God who is determined to hold on to his people. Verse 17 Remember what the sin of Peor led to in Numbers 25, when spiritual adultery had led to a plague that killed thousands. Verse 20, remember what happened when Achan loved gold more than God in Joshua 7. People died in battle until the idolatry was dealt with. You see, faithlessness is infectious, and it damages the whole community. Verse 18, if you rebel against the Lord today, Tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. So the Western Israelites are right to take this altar seriously. It could have terrible effects for the whole community. Potential faithlessness must be confronted swiftly and seriously. Now, of course, in our context, the principle is going to apply a little differently. Nobody is suggesting a military coalition of Bible-teaching churches to confront congregations wandering from the truth. But we do need to be ready to warn each other to be careful when we see worrying signs. Here's James 5, 19 to 20, final two verses of James. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, we mustn't do this challenging in the wrong way or from the wrong motives. It's not about being witch hunters, trying to make ourselves look better by denouncing the failures of others. And it's not about salving our conscience, getting something off our chest with a self-righteous judgmental comment that reassures us that we at least are still faithful to the truth. The motivation must be loving concern for them, for the whole community and for God's honor. We want to restore them to a loving relationship with God. And that means that the intervention is less likely to be a single challenge than a commitment to keep working with them alongside them, patiently. I think too often we leave it too late. I can think of times when a catastrophic failure has happened. A marital breakup, a descent into addiction, a total loss of faith. 
And actually, when we look back after the initial shock, we realize we'd all seen the early warning signs, but nobody had done anything. And that means the method will need care. Ephesians 4, 15, speak the truth in love. Galatians 6, 1, do this with a spirit of gentleness. The motivation of love needs to be very clear, and therefore a challenge will come best from someone with a track record of caring for that person, being in Christian relationship with them, walking alongside them in friendship. The words must be careful. Let me say that some people are more gifted in that respect than others. And often it will be worth thinking prayerfully about whether someone else is better placed to deliver the challenge. Certainly don't want the whole church ganging up on someone. Perhaps the pastor is best placed. Or perhaps that wise senior saint in the same home group is better. And the challenge must be undergirded throughout by prayer. Of course, it's much easier if we help each other earlier as a checkup rather than a challenge. Correction is easier than rebuke, and teaching is easier than correction. We might say, we missed you at home group yesterday. Is anything okay? Or, she seems nice. Does she know you're a Christian and that it can't go any further than friendship? Or, it must be really hard to spend personal time with God in the middle of hectic family life or with your busy job. As with Phineas and co, it may turn out that our worry is misplaced and we can rejoice. But those little questions show that we care, that we've noticed, that it's easy for us to go wrong and that we all need to be making wise decisions to keep close to Jesus. And therefore, on the other side, we must all be ready to welcome challenges and checkups. Proverbs is full of verses about the precious value of correction. Here's 15, verse 32. Those who ignore correction hate themselves. If we want to keep going and keep growing as Christians, we will welcome challenges and checks. Why is John Stott on the screen? This is why. It's a story of John Stott going to a Christian Union meeting to preach. Two of the student leaders have taken him out for a quick bite to eat before the meeting. And as the time comes to head to the student union for the talk, they start getting a little nervous in their seats. And finally, one of them plucks up the courage to say, excuse me, Reverend Dr. Stott, um, we need you to sign our doctrinal basis before you can speak at our meeting. I'm really sorry, but it's our policy. Two 20-year-olds daring to check up on the doctrinal soundness of the author of some of the most influential evangelical books of the 20th century. What did he say? I'm so glad that you asked. It would give me great pleasure to sign. We need to program ourselves not to be defensive as our knee-jerk reaction to any challenge, to see it not as an accusation or an attack, but as a sign of Christian love, a chance to discover maybe a hidden danger to our faith that we had missed or been ignoring. Of course, like in Joshua 22, it may be that we can reassure and ignore the challenge. 
But our first response must be to pause, thank, and think. Could be something crucial that will keep us faithful to Jesus. Challenge each other. Finally, remind each other of God's faithfulness. Remind each other of God's faithfulness. Verses 21 to the end. The Transjordan tribes are very keen to reassure Phineas and co. about their altar. It's not an act of rebellion. It's not disobedience against God. It's not an unfaithful rival altar for sacrifice. Three times in verse 23, 26, and 29, they promise that it's not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. They have a different laudable aim. In Joshua 22, God's people are enjoying a moment of united faithfulness. They have fought together and they have celebrated God's victories together. But looking forward to the future, they are worried. Verse 24, will the coming generations forget that these Transjordan tribes are part of God's people? Might future Westerners say, you Easterners have no share in the Lord. Will the, with the Jordan lying between them, will spatial distance lift, lead to spiritual drift? Verse 25, your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. And so, verse 28, they have built an altar not of sacrifice, but of witness. They have built a replica of the true altar that will jog their corporate memory about this great moment of seeing God at work. Phineas and co. are delighted. Verse 33, they were glad to hear the report and they praised God. And verse 34, the altar was given this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. It's a repeated idea in the Old Testament. You might remember back in Joshua 4, the Israelites set up 12 stones, one for each tribe, at the crossing of the Jordan. And Joshua said, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them all about God, keeping his promise to bring his people into his place, the promised land. In 1 Samuel 7, they put up a stone after victory against the Philistines and call it Ebenezer. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Something I think about a lot when I'm in old church buildings or graveyards. They are filled with memorials and many of them are very moving. You see testimony in stone of centuries of people that Jesus held onto who kept clinging onto the God they could trust through all the storms of life. Next time we meet in St. Michael's, have a look at the memorial by the door. It's from 1675 and it has seven little skulls along the bottom. They represent the seven children of Henry and Anna Beeston, none of whom lived past eight years. And above is written, of such as these is the kingdom of heaven. The worst tragedy I can imagine, seven times. And yet Henry and Anna kept trusting in Jesus, kept focusing 
on the coming kingdom where all tears will be wiped away. Now, I'm not suggesting that we start building replica altars or putting up stone memorial tablets around this school hall. But this passage does teach us that one of the best ways to stay faithful in the future is to keep reminding each other of God being faithful to us in the past. Because otherwise we can so easily forget. Let me tell you about my grandmother. She was born into a very poor mining family. Her grandfather was an alcoholic who died falling down the stairs drunk. Her brother died age six. At 13, she had to leave school and take work as a servant. When she got married, the job prospects for her husband were so bad that they had to move right away from friends and family. That husband dropped dead with no warning while she was bringing up my mother. She had to go back to work peeling potatoes in a local school kitchen to pay the bills. It was very hard. At the age of 90, we had a party for her at church. And towards the end, she got up to say a few words, slightly to my surprise, because she was not a confident public speaker. You see, she had one thing she wanted to tell us all, the lesson that she had learned from this long and hard life. And brothers and sisters, it was this. Oh, trust in the Lord Jesus, for he never let me down. Such hard times over nine decades, he never let me down. I want to say at this point how blessed we are as a young church to have many senior saints. My sister joined a church plant in her 30s, and she and her husband were the oldest people. And that's pretty normal in young churches. Loads of children, no teenagers, nobody older than 40. But God has blessed us to look at each other with a beautiful full range of his children. We can benefit from the wisdom of those of you who have found God faithful over many decades. Please, older brothers and sisters, tell us your stories about how through family life or singleness, through career success or disappointment, through sickness, through health, through rich spiritual times and dry spiritual times, you have found, like the Israelites, that the Lord is God, the faithful, promise-keeping God who holds on to his children. And in smaller ways, we must, all of us, be sharing those reminders of God's faithfulness with others through little conversations, even with ourselves through keeping maybe a spiritual journal because otherwise we so easily forget. Remind each other. Well, it's been four very encouraging years for us here at Redeemer. Much joy, much thankfulness. Where will we be in 20 years' time? Well, I pray that God will have held tightly onto us and we will still be sticking close to the Lord Jesus. He will do that through us encouraging each other, challenging one another, and reminding each other about his faithfulness. Let us pray to finish. Lord, thank you that while you alone save us, 
you do not save us alone. Thank you for giving us each other to help us keep clinging onto you. Help us to keep point help us to keep pointing us to you with encouragements, challenges and reminders so that on that final day we might all hear you say well done good and faithful servants come and share your master's happiness. Amen. <laughs>